The Corner Table is brought to you by the Cap Times Idea Fest. Two days of lively discussion on September 28th and 29th on the University of Wisconsin-Madison campus. You can find tickets at captimesideafest.com. You know, when you buy a bottle of very cheap wine, that wine has been manipulated they add sugar, they add acid, they add this stuff called mega purple, which is like a dye that, you know, makes the wine more intensely colored. Um, these are all things that are created in the lab. Winemakers that skew those tools to try to really express a sense of place deserve to be checked out. Corner Table, a podcast about food and drink in Madison, Wisconsin, produced by the Capital Times. I have been spending the last couple of weeks getting ready for a wine trip out west, and I'm seeing a lot of spots that I'm planning to go making quote-unquote natural wine. These are usually small-scale independent producers working in sustainable or full-on organic vineyards with minimal intervention, and their goal is to make wines that taste like an unphotoshopped version of themselves. They're like real and they're really good, usually. I am your host, Cap Times food writer Lindsay Christians. My friend Bob Haymauer from Cork and Bottle and East Johnson Street is back in the studio this week to chat about a couple of natural wines that are available here in Madison and why their sense of place and where they're made makes them so interesting. Stay tuned. Welcome, Bob. Hey, Lindsay. It is so good to have you back in here. It's good to be back. It's good to be back. You it's were just in Europe. Yeah, I was. I was in Copenhagen for a week. That is amazing. It was. It was. Um, it really. Like, I try not to use the word amazing, but it. It was remarkable. It was amazing. It, yeah. Best food city I've ever visited. My dad likes to use the word unbelievable. Unbelievable. I'll. I'll. I'll adopt that. It, Copenhagen was unbelievable. The. Uh, we went to so many. Like mind-blowingly great restaurants. Even the ca- like the coffee scene was great. Ooh, yeah, it was. I mean, we had some really good coffee, and the natural wine scene was really cool. Which okay, is, that which, is awesome, yeah. and that is what we're here to talk about. That's what we're here to talk about. Look, so that's, I believe we call that a segue. Oh, in the perfect! Look at that. <laughs> so professional. <laughs> we are super professional. Um, <laughs> so natural wine. What is the difference between just like? Wine and natural wine. Well, that's it's complicated, right? It's um, natural wine is not something that has like a formal definition. It's kind of like the Supreme Court's definition of pornography. You know, I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. Yep. Um, it generally refers to wines that are not messed with through kind of artificial means. Is kind of a way to think about it. I try to think of natural wines more conceptually. Uh, kind of loosely than kind of like a strict definition. What that means realistically is that they're usually formed organically and biodynamically. Either they're certified as organic and biodynamic or not um, in the cellar. And so once the fruit comes in, there's they don't inoculate with particular strains of yeast. They use the natural cellar yeast to uh, for fermentation. Uh, minimal use of sulfur. Uh, you know, sulfites... Uh, are a natural byproduct of fermentation of grapes, but you know not addition- adding additional SO2, sulfur dioxide, to kind of sanitize the wine or adding minimal amounts of it. Um, and those are kind of some of the 
some of the benchmarks. A lot of times not filtered or fined. None of those things in and of themselves defines it as natural wine. It's just, it's more a philosophy and a, you know, a kind of a conceptual category to, in which to put a wine than to, you know, a strict set of, you know, of strict rubric by which to judge it. And every one of those, to me, when you describe it, feels like a crapshoot. Like, well, we're going to see what yeast comes from the air. Yeah. And we're not going to put in a specific kind of yeast that we know will give us X, Y, Z results. Mm-hmm. Same kind of thing with, like, the use of sulfur. Mm-hmm. Isn't that one of the ways you keep wine from oxidizing? It is. I mean, sulfur plays a lot of roles. Sulfur dioxide, the addition of sulfur dioxide, plays a lot of roles in terms of stabilizing wine. It's not just oxidization. It's... Um, it's, uh, you know, micro, uh, microbial growth. So, like, things like, uh, you know, uh, Britannomyces, Lactobacillus, um, prevents re-fermentation in the bottle. Um, so these are all things that, over the years, people have realized that sulfur dioxide really helps with. Um, proponents of natural wine say it really takes away from some of the vitality of the wine, that it, um, by killing all that other, by killing all the stuff you want to kill, um, you kill other things that, you know, kind of make it unique and special. It's They kind of make the – I've heard the analogy made to overprescription of antibiotics, right? Antibiotics kill all all bacteria and hopefully more of the bad ones – more of the bad stuff than the good stuff, but it also kills the good stuff. Does it mean you have to be more hands-on? Um, I think – in the, anything with wine world, at least, there's no like pat answer. It's I think what it means is you have to have a clean cellar. It means like you can't take shortcuts in the vineyard. You have to really know when you're going to be picking and having a knowledge of your vines. By definition, it means you're more hands off in the cellar, right? Because you're not, you know, using reverse osmosis or adding sugar or adding acid or you know, doing all these things that kind of spoof wine in the cellar to get it to be a more consistent product. So you're not doing that. So in that sense, you're hands off, but you also have to be a lot more aware of what's going on with the wine as you're making it. So more labor, but not more intervention? You you still would intervene. You, you know, you still do things, but you just don't, you know, add artificial things to the wine. And that really is something that people... Uh, I'm hoping that the trend with food, you know, the trend with organic food really brings people along with this trend in wine too because I think, you know, when you buy a bottle of very cheap wine from the grocery store or from wherever, uh, that wine has been manipulated. They add sugar. They add acid. They add this stuff called mega purple, which is like a dye that, you know, makes the wine more intensely colored. Um, and kind of adds like a weird mouthfeel. Um, these are all things that are created in the lab. And there's like a ton of tools like this. And I think winemakers that skew those tools to try to really express a sense of place deserve to be checked out. I've been making my lists because I'm about to go to Sonoma and cool. then also go to the Willamette. Mm-hmm. And I'm very excited. And the Willamette I know a little bit better than Sonoma because we've been tasting there before. But Sonoma, we've only I've only been like once or twice. Mm-hmm. So I've been making my lists of wineries and I'm looking for, you know, organic, biodynamic, natural winemakers. And I've noticed a lot of times the wines cost a bit more. Mm-hmm. And I – I guess I thought that was because they had to keep a closer eye on their vines. Maybe they're trying to buy better fruit because they really want to express, you know, that place Mm -hmm. and have that lovely expression. 
But also I've thought about like when I think about natural wine, one of the things I think about is that it can be funky Mm -hmm. because it can kind of be unpredictable. Yep. And when you're paying more money for something, maybe you don't necessarily love if it's unpredictable. I think it's a – I think you have to kind of know what you're getting into a little bit. And maybe it's even more important in that sense to find a producer that you trust, find a winemaker that you're like, okay, I know that I like Benzinger Mm -hmm. or whatever as an example in Sonoma that does biodynamic stuff. Mm -hmm. These natural wines, a lot of times you want to have a sense of who is who is making those choices mm-hmm. to try to, you know, pick where to intervene and where not to and all those kinds of things. So No, I mean I think that's that actually gets to a point that I didn't get to in terms of defining natural wine. I think an important thing for me when I'm looking at these sorts of wines is is it an independent winery? Is this someone who has is it relatively small production? And I think when you talk about cost uh, I think you have to think about, okay, if you're going to be making wine in this way, sometimes you have to throw wine out. Sometimes you can't do anything with it. I mean, it's not – and that cost has to get absorbed. And people who are taking these risks, I think, deserve to be supported in that way. Um, I think also, like, if you think about the production of wine and the growing of grapes for wine in terms of the agricultural lens – all these intervention tools in the vineyard, pesticides and, you know, you know, spraying copper, all this stuff, all these things were developed to make a more consistent product, right? So when you stop using them, your product is less consistent, you know, and I think it's not until now that we're realizing what we might have lost in the process of adopting that, these technologies, so. Is everything becoming the same? I mean, I think that's part of it. I think a lot of the wines coming out of California are pretty consistent vintage to vintage. And as customers, we have gotten really used to that and comfortable with that. And it makes my job as, you know, selecting wine for restaurants or at the shop makes it easier. But I don't know that the homogenization of that is necessarily the most awesome thing. (laughs) Back to awesome. Yeah, there we are. Corner Table is sponsored by the Cap Times Idea Fest, an event with an exciting lineup of guests, including David Axelrod. The fest is in Madison on September 28th and 29th. You can find tickets at captimesideafest.com. Well, what wines did you bring in today? Well, I brought in two. I brought in um, one from Tuscany and one from the Loire Valley. Nice. These are two of my favorite um, Biodynamic natural wine producers. One red and one white. Uh, so let's jump in here, huh? Let's do it. Okay, so we'll start with the white. Um, this is from Fabrica de San Martino. This is uh, a winery that I had the pleasure to visit a few years ago outside of Luca in Tuscany. This is uh, an estate that's been around since 1735. Oh my and, God. Yeah, this was a really, this is like, and it's tiny. We're talking it's like before our country was a thing. Mm hmm. Even conceptually. <laughs> this is a blend of uh, Vermentino, Malvasia, and Trebbiano, um, all organically farmed. Biodynamic farming is kind of this odd uh, philosophy of farming that's based on lunar cycles, and it, which kind of gets a little hippy-dippy and out there. But 
Um, what it also promotes is like this idea that the vineyard is a living thing or the, the field wherever you're growing stuff is a living thing that has different components. The bugs in the soil. It's also about like the good bugs, right? Yeah. yeah. And, you know, good bacteria and like really promoting the health of the land as a whole and like, you know, planting cover crops and doing all this other stuff and really trying to make sure that the vineyards are alive. And it's amazing going into a biodynamic vineyard versus a conventionally farmed vineyard. The soil has like bugs in it and there's stuff happening. Whereas, you know, when you go into a conventionally farmed, you know, with pesticides and whatever, it's like, it's very much um, a more sterile atmosphere. But this wine is cool. I love the golden color. Like yeah. It's got that kind of golden color that I associate sometimes with um, Chardonnay, actually. Like yeah. that kind of sort of darker yellow. Well, this actually sees a little bit of skin contact. So oh, okay. this isn't like a full-on orange wine, like a white wine that sees a lot of skin contact. But this sees, I think, a couple days of skin contact, depending on vintage, to give it a little bit of that kind of, to that mouthfeel. But it's like, it just jumps out yeah. at you. The, the aroma... I read once that like aroma refers to one thing and bouquet refers to another thing. Like it's only got a bouquet if it's older. And I, I can't deal with that kind of parsing <laughs> of language. Um, it smells like, uh, to me, it has like a lovely greenness to it. Like it's really mm-hmm. kind of fresh and vegetal, but also there's like the citrus rind thing happening yep. with it. Oh, for sure. Um, I I think of, I, I've said Malvasia for so long, Malvasia mm-hmm. as something with a little bit more sweetness to it usually, like something like sweeter, fruitier. Yeah, and it, it, to me, it adds a floral element to mm-hmm. the nose that I find really, really appealing. And the cool thing about this, this is a 2013. This is not like a, a young white wine. So this is like well on its way, but it really has, I mean, it's very vibrant. It's very, very, you know, fresh. It's got really pleasant, soft fruit. Um, really aromatic. Yeah. I love that. It is. It's got that interesting body to it. Yep, and that's comes. I think comes from the skin contact, where you get just a little kind of like not full on tannins, but just a little little, you know, kind of grippiness to it. One thing I like about a lot of these styles of wines, these you know natty wines, as mm-hmm. I've heard them called, um, they're often really great with food because they often do have a little bit more acid. This is delicious and really unusual. How much is the price? This, uh, I think, low thirties. So more for a white, for sure. Yeah. Uh, but it's so versatile at the table. And it's – this is a five-acre estate. Oh, my God. <laughs> there isn't a lot of this stuff around. Um, and it is – it's such a cool place. It's this, uh, you know, this villa from 1735. When I visited, it was in February. They had the, the house all closed up upstairs, and they were living in the servants' quarters downstairs, the old servants' quarters, you know, like Downton Abbey upstairs, downstairs, like that kind of – we had dinner in their family kitchen downstairs, which was the old estate kitchen. It was super cool, and, it, you know, just braised some kale with some sausages. I don't and even was, know your life, but that's it was It was <laughs> – it was very much itself, right? Like it was very much a place when you were there. You felt like, oh, I am in a place unlike any other. And this wine is definitely a postcard from that place. And like, you know, the donkeys running around the vineyards and the dogs and, you know, um, you know, Giuseppe, the owner, like making food and pulling, you know, pulling old bottles. It was just like this really amazing experience. And to be able to have this wine and be able to taste it, like I feel like you can really taste that passion, that really that sense of family, and that sense of place, which 
I don't know. Maybe it's just me being a sentimental nerd. But no, but there is something romantic about these kinds of yeah, things. Yeah, I agree. I mean, and it's it's one of those things that if you don't love it, you don't do it this way. And I believe that you can taste it when someone cares about what they're making. This is beautiful. Do you have this at the shop? Uh, we do. We do. Nice. It's really cool and really different. And I think probably one of the challenges for you is just sort of describing it to folks and saying, okay, this is going to be similar to this, but not quite. And I just need you to try it. Yeah. Just take a chance on this. If you don't like it, I'll make it right. But I know that you're going to love this. And this is one of the wines I really like to kind of spring on people because you don't know what to get. It doesn't say anything about the grapes on it. Like it, it's just like this weird wine that's very easy to kind of overlook unless you know what you're looking for. But this is, yeah, oh, it's so good. Fabrica de San Martino. Fabrica with two Bs. Yep, yep. All right, and for our second wine, we're going to go to the Loire Valley, you said? We are, yeah, the Moss family. So this is, uh, we did that show about... Uh, pet nat. Yeah. And they, this family makes one of my favorite pet nats that we actually um, are really excited to have at four quarter right now for our pet nat Mondays that we're doing. So yeah, this is a family, Agnes and Renee. Uh, they had a wine bar and got convinced to start their own winery. So they did in, I think, 1999. Their sons, uh, Joseph and Sylvestre, are also involved now, and Joseph has the awesomest. There again, again with awesome, um, the greatest, <laughs> the greatest Instagram handle. It's most deaf, M O S S E deaf. That's I adorable. Respect that incredibly. <laughs> but this is so. Besides all of that, uh, this is their Anjou Rouge. So Anjou, an appellation in the Loire Valley. uh, known most famously for Cabernet Franc, but this is actually a blend of Cabernet Franc and Cabernet Sauvignon. Um, And it's, you know, 35 to 50-year-old vines, you know, know, again, very minimal sulfur. On the finish, you get a little bit of that kind of, um, just a hint of, I think, a little bit of, a little bit of bread, like just, you know, it's there just on the finish just to kind of give it a little bit of depth. But it's it's really, it's a pretty wine and it's versatile and it's got this kind of tobacco thing going on on the finish, which I really like. And um, It's got good acid, which I yeah. love. Um, it does have a little bit of those like almost chewy tannins, like mm-hmm. it's just a little tannic on the end. But the structure is really nice yeah. on this. This is a 2015? Yep, yep, 2015. It's just, it's a really, I think you're right, it's very pretty. Um, it's not, it's not funky or strange in any way that I think would be off-putting. Yeah, exactly. I tried to choose two that I think, I mean, because you can really go off the deep end with those kind of funky, strange, like, what am I tasting? This does not taste like any wine I've ever tasted. Um, you can have those. But I, I tried to choose two that I think are interesting emblematic of the movement and but still accessible and you know don't have a ton of off or what people might consider to be off flavors so yeah it's like it does have that kind of cherry fruit uh the red fruit that Mm -hmm. i think of but it has more more depth to it i mean it and i think there's like a savory yeah and i think there's a savory streak to it too yeah that i get that kind of um like you know like a beef bullion thing on the nose that kind of continues into that like dried herb, crushed leaves, tobacco kind of finish, but not um, – but, yeah, then it has that lift, that that bright acidity that kind of makes your mouth water. 
it's yeah, this is good stuff. Really, it does. It makes me think of fall. It's it's got that. It's got the sort of the lovely sort of balance between the fruit and that savory thing mm-hmm. that you talked about. Like, just grill something and yeah. open this. I just grilled. We just grilled like a three pound pork shoulder. Mm. But this wine's perfect for something like that. Yeah, for sure. And the nice thing about both of these wines is, you know, they're both right around thirteen percent alcohol. You know, you can have like that's another thing that we talk about with natural wine because you're not kickstarting it with some sort of super yeast that really converts a lot of the sugar into alcohol. You have this, you know, these kind of like lighter and alcohol wines, which makes it more food friendly and more lunch friendly if you're going to have a glass with lunch. Also, I feel like I'm always inclined to want to try more wines yeah. like rather than, oh, okay, well, I had a glass of this. It's the end of my night. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's just kind of nice to know that you could session it for lack of a better. Yeah. We'll take that one yeah, from we'll just... the beer nerds. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no, this is delightful. This is beautiful. How, how much is this one? Uh, this one is uh, $24.99. Nice. So yeah, not like this is like a, you know, it's not necessarily something that everyone's going to pop open every day, but it's not prohibitively expensive. I don't know. It feels to me like Sunday, Sunday night. I've roasted a chicken, and I want to open something a little nice because I'm not going to be doing anything else really. Like I'm not at a party. Yeah, Sunday night's my night to open. Like I, that's usually when. Yeah. Um, my partner and I, we will raid the cellar and make some food and. It's like the one night of the week that we both have off. So we, we try to have something a little bit nicer because we actually get to sit and think about what we're drinking as yeah. opposed to like getting home late and, you know. I feel like I've, I've done the work of the week and I'm, you know. Yeah. Done. So people, <laughs> <laughs> this is a great Sunday night wine. It's sun, Sunday's only a few days away. Sunday is only a few days away. <laughs> well, thank you for bringing these in. My pleasure. Good to talk with you. All right. Take care. See you. This has been The Corner Table, a podcast about food and drink in Madison, Wisconsin, produced by the Capital Times. Our music was composed by Patrick Christians. Find more food and drink news at captimes.com and follow us on Facebook at Corner Table Podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and lots of other places. I am your host, Cap Times food writer, Lindsay Christians. My wish for you this week is some fresh pasta from the new deli on the east side, Alimentari. I had some last night and it was out of this world. Cheers! The Corner Table has been brought to you by the Cap Times Idea Fest. Two days of lively discussion on September 28th and 29th on the University of Wisconsin-Madison campus. You can find tickets at captimesideafest.com.